Throughout the retreat, we've heard talk of the Buddha's teaching, dukkha and the end of dukkha. And for the most part, we've talked about the dukkha and not the end of dukkha. So tonight, I want to talk about the end of dukkha, which is sukha, or not dukkha. I had this long talk prepared, many pages on sukha and the practices that lead to experiencing sukha or happiness. And then I was just standing outside while I was waiting for the time to give the talk and the moon came up over the crater and I said, there it is, there's the teaching. So like a good Zen master, I pointed to it and I said to Phil, hey, do you see what I see? Sure enough, he looked at my finger. looked at my finger and saw the moon. (laughs) If we're going to talk about happiness, we have to ask ourselves, what is it? What is happiness? Because universally, everyone desires to be happy. So we have to ask ourselves, what is it that I do that brings me happiness? Or is happiness available from doing something? If we just look at the activities of our life, you know, the excited enjoyment of something we have longed to do for a shorter or longer period of time and finally you get a chance to do it and it brings you a lot of pleasure and something. Is that happiness? Feeling satiated with some enjoyable, pleasant experience that soon leaves and we're left with the longing and desire for more? Is that happiness? Or is happiness achieving some goal that we have held on to for some period of time and striven to, to achieve. And that feeling of completion, success, uh, fulfillment, is that happiness? A lot of our life is directed towards achieving, or getting, or experiencing. And we have all gotten a lot of what we've wanted, and we've achieved a lot of what we've set out to achieve, and we've experienced a lot of pleasantness, pleasurable experiences, one after the other. Are we happy yet? If not, when? Happiness has something to do with contentment, a feeling of well-being, and maybe a purpose in life. But I think maybe more than purpose, it's feeling connected to our life. Because happiness without feeling connected to our life just really isn't possible. 
And so implied in happiness is some uh, understanding that we know ourselves, that we really deeply see who and what we are, and find some contentment with that. that deep knowing of ourself. Is the goal of all Dharma practices to come to some deep knowledge, authentic abiding in who and what we really are, and acting from that place of our deepest knowledge with integrity. So that we actually manifest in the world in connection with all other beings that we come in contact with, that we actually manifest our deepest understanding of the source of happiness for ourselves and others. If we act with less than our full knowledge, our full integrity, our without at least trying to manifest it, we're not going to feel at ease with ourselves, fulfilled with ourselves, complete. We'll know that something's missing, and it's hard to be happy that way. When the Buddha was invited to speak Dharma. He would often give his listeners a progressive teaching where he would talk about the preliminary practices or the beginning practices of mindfulness. explaining their benefits, their limitations, and go on to the next. And he would usually begin with speaking about generosity, explaining its benefits, its limitations. And then he would speak about ethical conduct as a practice, its benefits, its limitations, developing a pure mind, an unhindered, a tranquil mind, the benefits and the limitations of that, and so on, up through and including as his final and maybe the most subtle and important teaching, the teaching of insight or freedom. So tonight I want to review the, the practices that the Buddha has offered as a way of discovering happiness, the happiness that is possible in our lives as we now live them. The first practice that the Buddha would teach is the practice of generosity or dana. And he would offer this because it is the most apparent and maybe the most dramatic expression of not being exclusively self-preoccupied, not acting exclusively for our own self-interest. And it's where we begin to care for others and through, through offering them something. And we don't get any material thing in return necessarily from that open-handed offering, but we do get a sense of connection with them.
And that connection is the foundation for all Dhamma practice. Acting for the care and the welfare and the well-being of others. Not at the expense of yourself, but including yourself with all beings. And that really is the foundation of the Bodhisattva's life. And for our practice here too, so that we don't get caught in some selfish striving for um, our own liberation only. When we understand that our practice really comes from the care for ourselves and others and the wish for all beings to be free of all forms of suffering, then our practice has, whatever practice we undertake, has a power and a, and a groundedness that has a better chance of uh, bringing the happiness that we seek in life. The Buddha said, if beings knew, as I know, the resultant benefit of sharing, they would not enjoy gifts or a single meal without sharing it, if there was someone to receive it. If we knew the resultant benefit, the Buddha said we wouldn't let a single meal go by without sharing it with someone. When I was in Burma, as a monk, of course, monks are entirely dependent on lay people for their support. And the minimal requisites are the robes for clothing, the food to eat, a shelter and medicine for healing. And the people, the country of Burma is a very wealthy country but it's been mismanaged and misgoverned for many years, and now it's one of the poorest countries in the world, somewhere near the, in the bottom four or five, in the lowest per capita income. And yet it's estimated that the average Burman, male or female, offers 25 to 35% of their annual income to support monks and nuns and stupas and schools for um, religious purposes. They have that much faith and confidence and um, generosity. And in spite of the, what we would have to say, extreme economic poverty, I mean, and it is really poor. There is a happiness, and there's a happiness in the Burmans which is extraordinary. They are, on the whole, very happy, peaceful uh, people. Towards the end of my stay in Burma, I went to I went with a couple of Burmese women who wanted me to meet their teacher, and we went to a monastery on the outskirts of Rangoon. And they told me about this man who'd been a very popular meditation teacher for many years, and then he wanted to leave the busyness of the meditation center and finally got permission from his teacher and went to what was then the edge of Rangoon, where Rangoon met the jungle, and found a cave and started living in this cave and just walking to the nearby village to get his alms for the day. And it was just very simple lifestyle of a renunciate monk doing his practice. But he lived with a lot of integrity. And when people would come to see him and ask for teaching, he would give them 
some instruction and guidance in, in, in meditation practice. Now his monastery, a little, I don't know if it's even an acre, is a, a dense forest in the middle of this sprawling Rangoon suburb, which has grown up around him because so many people have come to practice with him that Rangoon has grown in his direction. And he's just doing his practice. He's just living his life in service of anyone who comes to, to hear and practice the Dharma. And he doesn't allow, or he hasn't allowed, fancy buildings to be built, or for many years he didn't allow electricity be, to be put in, or a phone, or even cement pathways, but just kept it as you might find it at the time of the Buddha. And just a handful of monks, and a lot of lay women who have kind of finished with their family life and have kind of retired to the monastery, kind of take care of it for him. And when I saw how he lived his life in total service to those who are interested in the Dharma, it's very inspiring to me to see that, yes, he was being supported and cared for, but in return he was also caring for and giving his life. The Buddha said that the gift of the Dharma excels all forms of giving. And so to the extent that you practice and realize the Dhamma and live it in your life, not necessarily teach or like we do, but just to share the Dhamma, the, the authentic expression of the living Dharma through your life, you are giving the world and everyone who comes in contact with you the greatest gift that you can give them. You can't help but be happy. And those around you will feel it and know it. So this was the first practice that the Buddha taught. The second practice is the living an ethical life based on care and consideration, respect, really, for oneself and for others, to live in such a way that you do not intentionally cause harm. We know the here, the foundation of our practice here, really, the, the what makes it possible for us to live here in a community of 35 people and to feel open, trusting, uh, unthreatened, and, and to allow that vulnerability, which we inevitably come upon if we pay attention, to allow that vulnerability to be there, to open. The foundation of that is living an ethical life, living by the precepts, just really taking them to heart and uh, understanding that we all use them as a foundation for being able to develop stillness and tranquility, concentration, and for opening to the deepest truths which may be hard to accept at times. And when we are careless with our ethical life, we raise a lot of agitation, fear, shame, remorse, regret, guilt in our minds. And when we look deeply, as we do in practice, at the deepest, most vulnerable, tender parts of ourself, then that's what we'll see, 
is the hurt and the pain and the fear and the agitation and it's really hard to be concentrated to to be still to be tranquil in the body or the mind when there is this um, turbulence in our relationships with others when our ethical life is uh, not not steady the the foundation of an ethical life of course is uh, a sense of modesty within ourselves and a sense of conscience in relationship to others and these are really the standards that we discover within ourselves of what is right and wrong what is appropriate respectful behavior and it's not to lay a trip on somebody or and it's certainly not to lay your standards on somebody else that's not where morality comes from morality comes from within not being imposed by an authority from without and so it's really within each of us to look to see what is the behavior which is aligned with our understanding of what's right and wrong, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. But not only can we only look within ourselves, we also have to look at the community in which we live. And if you ask yourself, who is your own who is your community or where is your community? It is composed of those people that you care how they think about you. It may not be your neighbors, or it may not be a geographical community, but it's really a heart community, a community of beings in the heart that you really care how they see you what they know of you. And you want to, you mean, with that type of person, you really want to be open. But if you have behaviors causing you distress and turbulence and irritation, it's not easy to be open with others. We really have to look within ourselves to see what behavior begins to make us feel uncomfortable and then be willing to let it go. Conscience and modesty are called the guardians of the world. They protect the world from just falling into chaos. A few years ago I met this man, Melado Masome, an African wise man, shaman of sorts. And he said that the sacred thing we violate today does not want to retaliate immediately it lives in a different time frame. And though we might think, oh, I can do this and get away with it, nobody's going to know. Nobody may know except you. And some part of you will know that and not rest until and unless you make some sort of action or practice that purifies your own heart and repairs the break, the damage that's been done in the fabric of your community. Repairing the damage that occurs after you know, some unskillful action is not meant to be a shaming, guilt-inducing 
confession, but rather um, an act of really reconnecting, asking for and being accepted back into your community. And it's really important to understand the power of living an ethical life and preserving that foundation for your own and the community's tranquility. But even if we live an ethical life, and just imagine, I mean, what the world, how the world would be different if beings in the world just kept one of the precepts. Just take any one and multiply it by the five billion people that live on the earth, the world would be a totally different place. Just any one of the precepts. So our practice here of five precepts, even for a month, is a powerful statement to ourselves, to this community, and to the world at large, that we care about ourselves and others. The happiness that comes from living in a community that cares is a happiness that we all would love to have, to be able to walk down the street without fear, to know that you're not getting ripped off somehow, that you didn't have to be afraid of the person coming down the street towards you because they cared about you. That happiness, that's... We'd love that. It'd be great. But you can't buy it. You You can't find it. You can't move into a community where that exists. You can only create it through how you live your own life. But even living an ethical life is not, does not address the unhappiness and the suffering in our own mind. And so the Buddha taught, of course, a, a third practice of developing the pure mind, which we've spoken about extensively here on the retreat. The Buddha said, the mind is the forerunner of all conditions, all experience. The mind is the chief. If with an impure mind you speak or act, then dukkha or unhappiness follows you. If you speak and act with a pure mind, then sukha or happiness will be your experience. Happiness or suffering is in the mind. It's rooted in the mind. And we know the sources of our own suffering are when we are obsessed by any of the torments of the mind. The craving, the wanting, the aversion, the disappointment, the fear, the jealousy, envy, sleepiness, dullness, restlessness, doubt. When those experiences are predominant, it's hard to be happy. When those experiences are absent, happiness comes quite naturally. A sense of ease, a sense of tranquility, a sense of being um, present with your life and able to, to be content with that. The hindrances five hindrances that we've spoken about here on the retreat. Sloth and torpor, doubt, aversion, restlessness, craving. They each have their opposing uh, mental component. Sleepiness and doubt, that 
dullness and tor- sloth and torpor, is specifically opposed by the mind connecting to experience, the connecting of the mind. So if you find yourself dull and sleepy and unable to stay awake, the mind is not connecting. It's just not touching. It's not getting close to and actually feeling this moment's experience. And so that's the, that's the movement of our practice, is to take and activate our mind so that we actually touch this moment's experience, the breath, the posture, the, the sounds, whatever it is that's occurring. Doubt is opposed by the ability to sustain your attention. And that ability to sustain your attention, to connect with and to sustain your attention on experience is the essence of practice. Being able to connect, sustain your attention, so that or in order that you actually know what your experience is. This will overcome whatever doubt there is in the mind. And that clear knowing, that putting aside of doubt, that clear knowing of our experience, brings a lot of joy and delight to the mind. And that joy and delight is the direct antidote to any form of aversion. It's hard to be frustrated, disappointed, angry at what makes you joyful and that you take delight in. And when the process of knowing is what you take delight in, it really doesn't matter what you know. It can be pleasant, it can be unpleasant. It's the knowing that brings the delight. That delight, interest, joy, sometimes can be pretty dramatic, ecstatic, rapturous. But when it's matured or when it smooths out, when it gets some sort of maturity to it, then it settles into kind of a happy comfort of mind and body, what's called sukha, where things are just okay. The direct antidote to restlessness, where the mind is not looking for and restlessly bouncing from one thing to another, but is quite able to be at ease or okay with the way things are. And when the mind feels at ease, comfortable with the way things are, then it stays put. It becomes uh, easily focused, single-pointedly focused on what's occurring in the present moment. And this single-pointedness of mind is the direct antidote to craving. If we're glued to the present moment, we have no energy for uh, imagining or fantasizing or uh, yearning and longing for something else. So these are the antidotes to the hindrances. When the hindrances are put aside by the arousing of these qualities, connecting, sustaining, joy, comfort, and single-pointedness, then the mind is pure. Then the knowing capability of the mind will operate uncontaminated, unimpeded. And remember the Chinese Zen master Wang Po, 19th century, saying, this pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. It is all-pervading, radiant beauty. It is a jewel beyond all price. The pure mind, the mind that's unhindered, that is able to connect with, be comfortable with, and stay present with the moment's experience. 
is a pure mind. The practice we do here, the metta practice, the karuna practice, the, the other concentration practices, this is a development of these factors of mind. These five factors which oppose the hindrances are called the jhana factors. Jhana being the Pali word for absorption or a deep, deeply concentrated state of mind. And so in the practice of metta, for example, we repeatedly connect with the phrase or connect with the person or connect with the feeling of metta and we repeatedly sustain our attention on it again and again and again and again. And in the process, we just put aside everything else. We just keep sending our mind, our heart, our metta-filled heart to this person or group of people. And in time, the power of the mind becomes so great that nothing else gets in so focused and so steadily on that metta practice that thoughts, uh, you know, judgments, plans, whatever, just doesn't have any room to get into the mind that is totally concentrated on just pervading metta. And when this happens to these jhanic factors get developed, where connecting and sustaining and joy and comfort and single-pointedness is just paramount in the mind with this metta practice, then it's possible to, for the mind to just, well, it goes like this, and enters this absorbed state of mind, which is, as the Buddha said, free from sense desires and other hindrances, the yogi enters and remains in the first jhana, or absorption, which is a subtle state of joy and happiness, born of the seclusion of mind, no hindrances, with the connecting and sustaining of the mind on its object. Subtle mental state of joy and happiness. No thoughts, no fear, no anxiety, no restlessness, where the mind is completely absorbed in this love. This is a form of, or an experience of, tranquility and bliss and joy, a happiness that is not possible through sensory pleasures that is extraordinarily subtle, but very obtainable, not beyond any of our capability. When the mind is really concentrated, deeply concentrated, whether it's obtaining jhanas and absorptions or not. There comes a, an experience of connection with oneself and others which is all-pervading, which is just a boundary-less connection. Especially when practicing metta, there is this really deep uh, pool of love, respect, and also a feeling of being vulnerably open to all beings. No fear at all with whomever you bring into your field for pervading metta to. And this exquisite care for others allows for a softness and a patience with any conditions. At the end of retreats, I like to ask people, 
a few questions. One of them is, so what has your practice gotten for you after all these years? You know, one time I was in Seattle, or just south of Seattle, and there was a small group of people doing a retreat, and at the end of it, you know, people had the usual things to say, and there was one woman who said, oh, I want to tell a story. And she's just, you know, ordinary, ordinary, middle-aged, middle-class woman, just like all of us. And she said one day she was driving in Seattle, and she pulled up to a stoplight, and there was a car ahead of her. And she was just, you know, mindlessly waiting for the light to change. And she noticed that the door was open on the passenger side of the car. Thought that was pretty strange. And she looked and she could see something going on in the front seat. She didn't know what. And the light changed and went around the corner and the door swung open and she kept going. So she decided to follow the car. So she just followed the car and a few more stoplights, a few more turns. And she could see that somebody in the front seat was beating on or doing something to someone else in the front seat. So she followed this car, and the car pulled off the curb, uh, pulled off the side of the road, the curb, and this woman could see that somebody was beating on somebody. So she took her car, and she went around it, and she brought it right up to the front bumper on an angle so that her bumper was right up to against their bumper. And then she started tooting her horn, tooting her horn. She didn't, she didn't stop to think what she was doing. She was just tooting her horn. And this guy in the front seat, the guy, he looks at him and says, What do you want? And she says, I just don't want to see anybody get hurt. Which allowed the person who was getting beat on to get out of the car and to get away. And this woman said that she didn't know, she didn't realize what came over her. She was in a, a dangerous situation with someone that's so uh, violent. But she said that all she felt at that time was not fear, but love. She's been practicing a lot. And she said that that's really that quality of fearlessness and knowing the appropriate action to take just comes or she attributed it to her practice of the Dhamma that kind of tranquility that kind of steadiness of mind that fearlessness of heart that comes with this practice steadying the mind, calming the mind down, ability to see our own torments in our own mind and to know the harm that they can do to us. And we sit here and we look at it day in and day out. We look at that person inside of us that's in the front seat of that car, both of them, within us. And so we know what's going on in both of those people. And somehow we know the appropriate action to take. Metta is really powerful. Concentration is really powerful. And it brings a, a happiness, both with the jhanic absorptions, but also in our feeling of being connected to everyone, not feeling isolated from, cut off from, different than anyone else. And that makes for a happiness in the heart that is not easy to come by otherwise. Generosity, ethical conduct, purification of the mind, the development of absorptions, jhana or metta. The Buddha taught 
another practice, a fifth practice, the practice of insight or vipassana, which we have been mostly doing here. So I won't belabor this practice. But just to say that when we open to Vipassana practice and we open to the deep nature of all experience and we begin to see the three characteristics, the impermanence of everything, the inability of anything to provide us with that stability, that security, fulfillment, the dukkha element, the anicca element, the dukkha element, and then the ephemeral nature of, or the conditional nature of all of our experience. Our sense of who we are is so conditional. It changes with the slightest change of wind blowing through our lives and our sense of ourself is changed. When we really see deeply into these characteristics, we can't help but begin to live our life more in alignment with these truths. And it may not be that we just suddenly turn our life around and get a different job and a different relationship and live, move somewhere else. That's not what I mean. But from a much deeper place, we approach the challenges of our life with an understanding of ourself which can't get elsewhere. It's difficult, though, to open to these characteristics. It takes, frankly, it takes a long time to come to terms with dukkha. It does. It just takes a long time. You just have to see it again and again and again and again until you finally accept that this is the way it is. And then you'll begin to live your life in alignment, in, in accord with this truth that you see. But frankly, you have to exhaust every uh, possibility that you hold out in your mind that maybe it's not like that. And you will. Your mind will challenge every step of the way. Doesn't like to see and acknowledge that truth. But if we practice, if we just keep noticing things as they appear in the moment, what arises, what passes away, we'll see. We can't avoid that truth. We can't escape that knowledge. We'll come to terms with it. And people ask sometimes, well, what's it going to be like when I go home after this retreat? Is my life going to be very different? Am I going to suddenly be a different person and start doing different things? And, you know, I'm sure at some times you feel like, after that sitting, after you know that about yourself, you're definitely not going to live the same way you did before. Well, maybe. (laughs) But it's like this. If we were, if any one of us or all of us were born and raised in this village that's in a valley in a deep and steep and vast mountain range, and we're born in this village, and we grow up in this village, and we go to school, and we, we know all the streets and all the houses and all the people, and we just are very familiar with it. We grow up, and we, you know, get our job and family, and we're just living like people have lived in this community for centuries or generations. 
there's a certain familiarity with it. There's a certain, you know, ease and struggle and, you know, the whole thing. And then if somebody comes along through town and says, come with me, we're going on a hike. And you take this trip, you take this journey to the top of the nearest and highest mountain. As you leave the familiar and you enter upon this trail or this path upwards out of the familiar, when you look down, you look back, you see your whole life right there. And when you get to the top of the mountain, you can see the village you grew up in down there, in that little that little place down there that's all those buildings and streets and everything you have known is down there. And you see where that place is in relation to the rest of this vast mountain range. Other villages, the sky, just you have a different perspective on your life. Things look very different now. You have a different view of yourself, a different understanding of yourself. But you can't live on top of the mountain. You've got to go back home. You've got to walk down that mountain, you've got to go back home, you've got to take care of the kids, and go to job, go to work in the morning, and do the dishes. And so you go back to the familiar. You go back to the same old whatever it was you were in before. But you now see it completely differently. You still have to do the same thing. You still have to go through the same motions. You still got to take care of your responsibilities. But your decisions are made with a different perspective. That's the nature of insight. You're all going to go home. You are going back to the same situation you were in when you left. Except it's not going to look the same. And you might make your, de your decisions a little differently because of what you know now about yourself. Can you imagine the person who had taken that trip to the mountain trying to explain to someone still down in the village who had never been up there what they knew now that was different? Couldn't explain it. How, how do you explain something like that? Well, that's what it's like trying to tell somebody about what happened on your retreat. What'd you learn? Well, <laughs> if you sit still long enough, your back hurts. You know, well, somehow that knowledge just isn't useful to other people. <laughs> As we become familiar in this, through this practice with the stuff of our life, the changing stuff, the three characteristics, we begin to not only become familiar, but become less reactive to the way things are so that the great joys and the great sorrows of our life just stop pulling and pushing us around. We would just see, oh, this is the unfolding of my life. Yeah. How many times can we get excited about the same thing? How many times can we get depressed by the same thing? A lot. But eventually, we just step out of the picture. We just step back and say, you know, I don't need to torment myself with that same old story, that same old fantasy, that same old hope, fear, expectation, whatever. And we see, we discover that the mind can come to a place of balance. Not 
from being disengaged from our life, but from being fully engaged and seeing these that our true happiness is not in changing the conditions, but in how we relate to conditions of our life. And when we learn to relate to the conditions of our life with balance, not reacting one way or the other, then we find a peace. Not a peace of seclusion and isolation and distancing from life, but a peace being fully immersed in all of life, but not feeling uh, pushed and pulled around. Buddha said, there's no higher happiness than peace. And in his teaching of the path of happiness, or the practices that lead to happiness, it was this understanding that peace comes from the balanced mind. That true peace comes from that ability to let go of everything. Not being pulled, not being pushed, but to just let it be. And the sign that we have indeed let go is access to the unconditioned. Where the mind finally lets go. Let's go of this world, let's go of this sense of ourself just lets go of everything and enters the unconditioned. And the unconditioned is ineffable. There are no words to describe it. It has no color, it has no shape, it has no texture, it has no anything that we can speak about. But it does exist. And it is a sign of complete and utter letting go. It is possible. It is obtainable. It is a profound truth and knowledge that we can access. There's nothing to prevent us from accessing it except our own doubt and limitations. The Buddha again. This truly is the peace. This is the highest peace. Namely, the end of all formations, the forsaking of all rebirth, the fading away of craving. Detachment, extinction, Nibbana, the unconditioned. This was the highest teachings of the Buddha. Nibbana, the Santisukha, the happiness of peace. The practice that we do here, the practices that we do here, support and guide us, guide us to that understanding, the deepest understanding of the Buddha, that this peace, this santi sukha, this highest happiness of peace, is available to us.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.